Hi, everyone. Welcome back to my channel. My name is Stassi. Thank you so much for being here today. I am over the moon. I am so excited to be sitting down today with an OBGYN and talking about the importance of ovarian health and just everything that we need to know about what it like what it's like to be an OBGYN. And I am so excited to have Dr. Lauren Judia here today. So thank you so much for coming. Hi, thank you for having me. It's oh exciting to be here too. Yeah. I, I am like, I don't get nervous anymore. I've I have filmed over 160 podcasts now in the last like two years. It's just basically become my second job. But okay. today I've got the butterflies. I am very <laughs> excited to get to sit down and talk to you. This is a really important podcast to me that I want to share with everybody listening and the importance of, you know, ovarian health. But before we dive in, a uh, quick round of introductions. Uh, Lauren, why don't you tell us a little about yourself? Sure. Um, so I am in Florida um, where I'm licensed. I did do my training, my uh, residency at Albany Medical Center in upstate New York. Uh, med school before that was at LECOM, um, one of the largest osteopathic schools uh, in the country now. Mm -hmm. um, they have a branch in Florida, but I didn't make it to Florida until after residency. Mm -hmm. So um, med school was in Erie, Pennsylvania. Uh, I moved to Florida in um, mid-2015 uh, after graduating from residency mm -hmm. because I had a lot of family here. Um, I moved here with my husband, who is also a physician, um, different specialty. I initially worked for a medium-sized hospital-employed group practice doing full-scope OBGYN for a few years, mm -hmm. um, which is, we'll talk more about what I do, but so that was killer hours all the time, very busy, very mm -hmm. rewarding. Um, in a small town called Brooksville um, in Florida. And then I left there wanting more autonomy, um, including better hours to help raise my own family safely. Uh, and so now I have a private GYN only practice called Elite Women's Care. And one um, one office is based in Clearwater, which a lot of people have heard of, and the other is in Brooksville, kind of my home base. And so I also operate out of a hospital near each of those locations. Um, I also have, you know, a, a whole crew, my nurse practitioner, Marissa Soto, I've worked with since our baby delivering days, and um, as well as my practice manager, Melissa, has been with me from the old office and one of my medical assistants, uh, Amanda, has been with me this whole time as well. So um, as a crew, we're really proud of the care and comfortable environment that we can bring our patients. That is absolutely amazing. Uh, if, if I can ask, what made you want to be an OBGYN? Uh, so, you know, a lot of people because they don't know all that I get to do, mm -hmm. um, it seems like something that would not be interesting or a lot of people are like, why do you just look at vaginas all day? Um, which is, um, you know, part of the job. Mm -hmm. But um, the many reasons I liked it, you know, um, 
typically a woman tends to be the center of a family. Mm -hmm. Um, She's in charge of everyone's health and kind of what's going on with her significant other and her children. And, you know, that's a very kind of old fashioned way of looking at a family unit, Mm -hmm. but that's kind of what, where I came from small town, Ohio. And, um, my mind wasn't there yet. Right. So I saw that part. I thought it was awesome. There's preventative care. There's, um, more of a diagnostic problem-based care. There's the pregnancy care when you're doing full scope. Mm -hmm. And then I loved that sometimes you're in the office, sometimes you're in the OR, sometimes you are on labor and delivery and you are constantly working with different teams of people all with the same goal. And it's just very, very rewarding field, I think, and always busy and a lot of variety depending on what you like to do. Amazing. Um, I think you just kind of answered my next question too. Like a lot of people associate OBGYNs as, oh, I'm pregnant. I now need to go see an OBGYN. I've had the baby. Goodbye. But like, there's more that goes in to being an OBGYN. It's not just for pregnancy. It's just an aspect of it, but there's so much more. Um, I know you just touched upon it really quickly, but what else can an OBGYN look into if you're not pregnant? Yeah, that is a much longer answer than just saying what we do with pregnancy. It's so funny, even though it's the opposite of what everyone pictures. Yes. Um, So well care uh, is a big deal, I think, Mm -hmm. especially for the um, people that your uh, listeners tend to be, the 18 to Mm 35-year-olds. A lot of these people are well, but they're also not in the medical system. and so you're well until you're not and um, I I don't know as much about the medical care and flow in Canada but Mm -hmm. in the United States right now especially my area of Florida um, there's a shortage of physicians and providers in general and so we are booked out months if you know sometimes weeks in a best case scenario so if you're not already known to me it's going to take a while to get in Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, well care, you know, making sure that mentally you're okay, mm-hmm. uh, that you're using proper prevention of STDs, um, being screened for these, uh, at least yearly or more often, depending on risk factors so that, you know, um, men don't really pay much of a price for getting unlucky uh, but women we could lose our fertility mm-hmm. um, and not have any symptoms along the way so we just screen no matter who's symptomatic um, under 25 at least yearly but anytime there's risk factors um, we do breast exams and troubleshoot breast problems mm-hmm. um, I do a lot you know like you said ovarian health pelvic exams um uh, you know, does everything feel healthy? Is it small? Is it normal? Are you having pain? Pelvic pain is a huge topic to address. Contraception, another really large topic mm-hmm. um, with a ton of options. It's going to be varied for each person and what they need out of it. Or using contraception for not preventing pregnancy, but other medical conditions that tend to be helped by these things. Um you know, identifying other things that 
would it keep a person well, um, skin health. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I get asked my stomach hurts here. I know you're not a GI doctor, but what about, you know, what about this or what about this mole? Um, oh gosh, S surgical concerns again, along the lines of pain or ovarian cysts, as you've mentioned, mm -hmm. um, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, finally getting some attention, endometriosis, long-term care here, um, optimizing health for preparing for pregnancy, mm -hmm. um, after care of pregnancy, you know, the postpartum time for insurance is eight weeks, but in our lives, it's a lot longer than this. Mm -hmm. um, I have, um, you know, this is a very unfortunately well, depending on how you look at it. But for me, I think it's very unfortunate that um, women's rights, gay people's rights are being really trampled on here. Mm -hmm. um, we like to think of ourselves as a safe space for anyone with a uterus, um, as well as people who don't want that uterus, you know, because it just gender affirming care, mm -hmm. uh, some hormonal um, care. Um, God, there's probably so much that I've missed, but that's the beginning of the list of the other stuff I do besides pregnancy. See the list, the, I've been going to an OBGYN off and on for the last nine, almost 10 years now. So like I knew a small portion of what OBGYNs do, but you just opened the floodgate to yeah. like way, way, way too much, like a lot. Um, that actually kind of leads me to a question. I wasn't sure if, um, I was going to ask you because it's a, it's a sensitive topic, but you, you talked about uh, women's rights. Uh, it is the one year anniversary yesterday of Roe versus Wade being overturned in the States. That is a huge, huge, huge no. That should have never been overturned. The fact that it's a year and many states uh, do not have safe abortion. What has that led in the OBGYN world of back alley abortions, if you don't mind me asking? I don't mind. Yeah. Um, it's a tragedy to limit health care um, mm -hmm. to anyone. And um, these rules are being made by an extreme minority of people who, by the way, do not follow their own rules. Mm -hmm. um, I... Um, I can't say who or when or whatever, but I have provided terminations to mistresses of these people making these laws. They're full of it. Um, mm -hmm. Wealthy people will continue to get whatever they need and want. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter where they have to travel for that. The people that are affected are going to be um, poor women, abused women, people who are not able to easily get out of a situation and often a, uh, a, an unplanned pregnancy just puts them in further danger, either with their abusive partner or into further poverty. Um, so I live in a relative bubble. My practice is mm -hmm. guy only, and I only take insurance um, mm -hmm. and some people choose to cash pay. And so with that comes a lot of very privileged people. And so, I, and I also don't take emergency call except for my own patients in my own practice. Um, so it, I haven't personally yet had any patients um, that I've had to care for in re recent times with a an abortion, like you would call back alley, you mm -hmm. know, um, it's not, it's certainly, it is happening. 
Um, I have colleagues that have had to deal with these um, sometimes really major devastating consequences. I have elderly patients who remember the times before um, Roe v. Wade passed, who um, who lost their fertility from um, an infection during an illegal abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, I have patients who tell me about their mothers, their aunties, you know, who have endured this or died from it. These are not uncommon stories. These are what we're expecting to see as OBGYNs who just want to provide safe, needed medical care that should not be politicized and certainly um, shouldn't be politicized by people who are a minority or don't have a uterus, Mm -hmm. uh, who are not also willing to follow their own rules. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for saying that and being out there and and giving like it, it, I can't even say advice, but just talking about the experiences because the first thing is what's happening in the States isn't ending abortion. You're just killing women. Like you just said, like rich people are still going to go get abortions, regardless if they have to go to a state that allows it or not. But a different it, country. Or a different country. Like a good example is, so obviously I live in Canada. Yes. Um, it is, I can go see an OBGYN. I mean, the list is like a two-year waiting list because I'm not currently pregnant. But if I was to get in, I would pay zero dollars because it's covered under OHIP. And I could go get an abortion without any second questions. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't even be up for negotiation. They'd be like, oh, you need one? Here you go. You're good. Because it is medical care. Because it's exactly. medical care. And yes. our our uh, prime minister came out the day after. It was like, this is a medical treatment. This will like women will be able to still continue to have abortions. Um, I just always wanted to hear the the OBGYN aspect of it because all you kind of really hear are the angry people rallying saying, you know, you're killing fetuses, but you're not hearing about the science size. Cause oh, so for a good example is I've had two miscarriages in my life and I've had to use the abortion pill twice because yeah. the stage of pregnancy I was at, I was going, I was going to die if the, if the baby was going to continue to live yes. and right. So, but yeah. that's illegal in some States. And the fact that it's, it's against some states that have an abortion. I think it's after six weeks. Please don't quote me on that. I think it's between six and eight weeks, but, but a lot of women don't find out that they're pregnant. So sometimes the after the eighth right. to ninth to 10 weeks, especially if your cycle is irregular. Right. So I just kind of feel kind of shoot me on the foot and it's like, Oh, we offer it, but you got to like, it's after six weeks. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's bullshit. Uh- I 100% agree. Um, I chose my residency program Mm -hmm. uh, in New York, partially because I wanted to learn everything I could, including to be able to provide terminations to the extent of the law. Mm -hmm. Um, So New York was beautiful in allowing doctors to do their job. Yes. Um, Here in Florida, it's obviously a different situation. Um, right now we're limited to 15 weeks. Yeah. Um, I've had colleagues in similarly um, destructive states, I guess, where I don't know what you would call it, um, that the FBI has come to their home and because they do provide terminations as part of the full spectrum of medical care that we are obliged to offer, by the mm-hmm. way, 
Um, we have guidelines set out for us by American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, ACOG. Um, abortion is just considered medical care. Mm -hmm. And it really clearly states that if you're not comfortable counseling a patient unbiasedly towards all her options, then you refer that patient to someone who is going to offer a, an unbiased opinion about medical care. We are not to sway someone based on our religious beliefs. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. We are not supposed to. Mm -hmm. And um, so anyway, this, this doc, the um, agency came out and told her all the areas where a sniper could get her in her own home, including at the window in front of her sink where she washes dishes, she was not to use anymore, you know? So um, I'm purposely leaving names and stuff and timelines out of this because, because these people are endangered by providing medical care. And so, um, you know, to some extent, I'm really ashamed to say that I don't get to provide abortions to my patients. I make referrals, mm -hmm. um, unbiasedly counsel, um, when I first showed up here in Florida working for a hospital system, I said, hey, you know, um, what's your policy? Can I provide um, terminations? Do I have to get, you know, I'll get privileges at a sister hospital, whatever it is that you require, let me know and I'll do it. And every time I asked about it, I end up with like an inch thick stack of paperwork because they just didn't want it to happen, you know, and um what I mean by asking about what's your policy or whatever is I fully expected there to just be, you know, only on certain Thursdays or something, you know, mm -hmm. like make it a little annoying that it, when it can happen or only a certain time. Yeah. Um, in even in New York, we had people who were part of the OR teams, um, anesthesia or nursing, whoever mm -hmm. don't want to be involved in that person's care. Um, fine. Then don't be, you know, yeah. don't ruin an already terrible experience for somebody mm -hmm. let that person feel safe and I think um loved and protected and that she's going to be okay when mm -hmm. they come out of this um so I was fully willing to deal with you know who will be my crew in the OR and how can we be a team but that just wasn't even that wasn't going to happen yeah that makes me feel really sad um, it's a tragedy. Uh, I have been challenged face to face. I don't know why. It's very strange. You know, Brooksville is a very small town and we have um, a big divide in, mm -hmm. in, in belief systems there. Um, and it's gotten, I would say, like the more liberal thinkers, which liberal now only means giving people a right to normal health care. You know, it's it's the very low bar here with what liberal is. Um, and so I have had patients come to see me in the office, um, elderly women, you know, their uterus is out of commission 40 years mm -hmm. and they will face-to-face -face ask me just, well, what do you think of abortion? And um, yeah, I'm like, yeah, it's medical care. And then they'll start giving me some religious rant, which is not anything I care about. And I'll stop them and I'll tell them, you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm happy to provide you medical care that you need. I provide other people medical care they need. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think this isn't a debate about what medical care is. And no. I actually had <laughs> one woman push me enough that I said, listen, I'm almost 40. If I turned pregnant and my fetus had some mm -hmm. um, 
you know, genetic defect, which is far more likely when you're this old, mm -hmm. I'm terminating. And I don't care if I need to go to another country. I'm wealthy. None of this affects me. It affects the people that I should be protecting. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen her again, which is totally fine. But, you know, it, it's just like, it's as bad as you think it is. Um, yeah. I think physicians are, we're busy people. We are, you know, on the front line seeing who's affected by this and just working to try to keep our patients safe. And so we are not as politically noisy as we need to be. Mm -hmm. um, we try. I don't think it's enough. Well, Lauren, I want to thank you again for sharing. Like you, it, you're just you're just opening my mind of just being like, holy shit. Because again. I like I knew the grass isn't greener on the other side when it comes to this, but when someone throws religion into a medical practice, it just always kind of bothered me because it's just, it's like a medical procedure. We're not going to say like, oh, like in the Bible, it says if your arm is broken, we leave it broken. No, they'd be like, get a cast on it, go do something. So why is putting a cast on an arm different in my opinion? Because it's not, it's medical care. It's yeah. like, it's church and it's literally church and state. Yes. Separate the both. Right. Um, but uh, before we do move on to a, <laughs> a different topic, I didn't think we we're going to hit abortion in like the first 10 minutes, but yeah. this we is where we are. But I think this is really important because there are women in the States that are not able to get safe abortions. And I want to take this opportunity to ask you, I know you just give recommendations, but what if there's a, a woman right now listening to this podcast that needs help, what can they do or what can she do to be able to go and seek that help? You know, um, so there's a lot of things. I wish I could just come up with the websites offhand. Mm -hmm. So it is possible to, if you have an earlier pregnancy, have uh, mifepristone, the abortion pill everyone's freaking out about. It's perfectly safe. It's very effective. It is an anti-progesterone. So it just, um, as you mentioned, in the sense of miscarriage, when you need, when we need to expedite a delivery for safety um, mm -hmm. uh, or an early termination or whatever, there's mail order services still running. Um, there's um, Planned Parenthood and another uh, organization in my area that will uh, be able to offer these very readily. There are um, even networks set up of almost like an underground railroad to get our patients who are you know, beyond the 15 weeks that you can do in my state mm -hmm. um, and other states wherever they're limited, really an underground railroad of offering to house and transport these women. There are grants or funds um, might be a better word for it um, to help transport these people to um, a state and, and lodging so that they can acquire the medical care that they need. Um, these are websites that I can I can find them for you, but um, th there are ways, but the you have to be really determined. It's not as easy as just showing up to your doctor and saying, this is the medical care that I need because um, to make it worse, you know, physicians who have had enough and can't keep watching their patients die or almost die because they're scared to get sued by just completing a miscarriage, um, or providing a termination to someone, um, they leave, they leave the States because they can't bear it anymore. And that leaves behind the doctors who 
can look the other way or who might share those religious um, um, extremist views mm -hmm. um, and can't admit that not everyone is that super Bible Christian extremist. Um, we don't all need to live by those laws. That's what this country is about. So there's help out there. There's people willing, but um, there, you're going to have roadblocks and it's mm -hmm. going to be scary. Absolutely. Well, uh, I'm going to make sure that you send me the links. The links are going to yes. be below. If you are listening to this podcast right now and you need to have an abortion. And if you're in the States and you don't know what to do, please go check out the links. It's going to lead you in the right direction. And I want to say, I'm so, so, so sorry that you're going to, you're going through this, but it will be okay. I promise you, you, you will be okay on the other side. Um, but thank you uh, for, for talking about it, because I think this is a topic that we really need to talk about, especially on the literally one year anniversary of Roe versus Wade being turned over and the fact that like she's still alive i think it's row or way i don't know which one's which i don't know which <laughs> one was row which one was way but she's still alive yes so she got to watch that be overturned that's fucked i'm just saying right. uh these but... things happen in a lifetime and then it, it it we think it's like so long ago and that person's dead everyone involved is dead yeah it's real it's real um, you know what is real, which is great segue to the next topic is PCOS. You talked about that it's it's now getting the light of day. I had no, I had never heard of P PCOS until five years ago when one of my friends was diagnosed with it, and I was like, "Holy shit, what is PCOS?" And she had talked about um, all the symptoms, and then lo and behold, every place I turn around, someone now has PCOS. So. Uh, kid, like, so what's going on? Has like, has it always just been around, and people are now finally getting diagnosed, and it's coming to the light, or was it always kind of like a secret, and you never talked about it before? Well, um, as I mentioned, I graduated in fifteen from residency. So, um, as far as how long I've been in medicine, I don't have a good historical perspective. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, and and. You know, we have 10% of the population, uh, the female population, mm -hmm. who is affected with PCOS. So in my opinion, whenever it's 10% of an entire population, at least as the United States is, mm -hmm. that's a version of normal. And yes. so there needs to be a lot of awareness. There needs to be, um, you know, options on managing this syndrome, um, which is poorly named, I think, in most people's opinion anyway. Um for, and we'll go over that too. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's very, very common. There is some thoughts of, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Does PCOS cause obesity or does obesity cause PCOS? Mm -hmm. um, and there is a much higher rate of obesity, obviously. Um, weight is a really difficult um, topic and issue, and it affects a lot of people and mm -hmm. does contribute to irregular ovarian function so i'm not sure which is you know is it more common are we finally recognizing it it's probably all of that okay well i i could not agree more because it is cause and effect because uh, throughout the pandemic i gained a lot of weight and that was the first thing that the obg went tested me for was pcos and they're like you don't have it you're just overweight and i'm like yay um but for anybody who doesn't know what pcos is 
can you explain to my listener or our, I can't say our listeners, could be our listeners, uh, what PCOS is and what are the symptoms of it? Yeah. Um, So my apologies to any um, people who identify as male out there and are like, so over this, we will get to topics that more directly uh, (laughs) affect not just people with a uterus, um, but also pay attention anyway, because one in 10, there's someone you love that has this (laughs) Mm -hmm. and they probably need some support. So um, the most common criteria, at least for United States medicine that we use to diagnose PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. So syndrome means like a constellation of findings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the Rotterdam criteria. We have names for everything in medicine. And you have to have two of three criteria met, um, <clears throat> which should kind of be your first indication, like why do you only need two of three? And one of those is the polycystic ovaries they're referring to. So it's named for something you don't have to have be diagnosed with the something. Mm-hmm. Um which also tells you, we don't know everything we need to know about this. Mm-hmm. I can't cure it. Um, we don't know why it happens. We do know it can run in families, but why we don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one criterion is polycystic ovaries and it's not really cysts. Um, they're more follicles, numerous mm-hmm. follicles of an ovary. Um, the second criterion is going to be Um, excess testosterone as evidenced either by lab values or by excess hair or acne. And um, hair is a little subjective and difficult here, but what we mean is more than your family has. My family's Italian. We are hairy. I'm going to have a mustache if I don't handle that. Mm -hmm. Um, So more than your family, more of a male pattern than anyone else has typically in your family. And then finally, irregular periods. And this isn't just like, oh, last month came three days late. We're talking, Mm -hmm. you know, year after year, irregular periods, unless you're medicated, um, at least, you know, not just the past three months. That's just, you know, we're not machines. So those are the three criteria. You only need two um, to have those. And the other, I think, important thing to know is that within eight years of starting your period, we call that menarche, Mm-hmm. Within eight years, you cannot actually be diagnosed with PCOS because all those things I mentioned are so common in mm-hmm. people who just started menstruating. Um, so they're, if we're really thinking they might have PCOS, we call them at risk of PCOS. Okay. okay. Um, so that's, that's interesting because I was like, cause when I started, like when I, when they're like, oh, like you might have PCOS, I was like 25 and they're like, okay. oh, you've now hit the age Well, we're going to test you. I was like, oh shit. I didn't know you couldn't test before, but you just answered that question. And I, I pre, I appreciate that. How would like, like what advice could you give to anybody who thinks that they currently have PCOS? Like what's, what's the first steps you do to get diagnosed? Do you you go to the family doctor? Do you go straight to an OBGYN? Do you keep a a tracker of your period to see how irregular? Like, what do you do? Yeah, probably any of that's okay. Okay. But um, I would most recommend seeing an OBGYN mm-hmm. uh, because even though it's a hormone issue and you think endocrine or uh, I'm not well and you think your primary care, um, some primary cares are fully equipped and comfortable handling this, but not all of them. And so that's why I say go to an OBGYN because it is a uniquely 
um, basically ovarian endocrine disorder. Um, and so I think we're the best prepared to counsel and recognize and then manage with mm -hmm. someone. Um, so my first advice would be go to an OBGYN. My second advice is go intentionally to discuss this concern. Um, and I say that because in the United States with, um, wellness care being promoted, uh, there's no copay for wellness visits. So one a year you get no copay. And so people are like, oh, I'm going to the doctor. That's your wellness visit. I should have almost nothing to counsel you on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and so time is allotted as such, right? Um, and also people get frustrated if I can't address everything they want in that visit. Mm -hmm. Other people are frustrated because now I'm not on time. Uh, but if I know you have a problem, that's all we're going for. You know, that's what we're addressing that day. I can give it the proper amount of attention. Mm -hmm. uh, you'll be scheduled properly. Um, I might have resources more ready for you. You know, just it makes sense to go in for what you want to go in for. Um, uh, my second bit of advice is it does not cause infertility. Um, I think I, I, I love that there's a lot of awareness coming to it and you'll mm -hmm. see people um, just stressing this infertility factor of it. Um, infertility is a harsh word any, right? anyway, right? So subfertility, yes. Obviously, um, what I tell my patients is everyone else that doesn't have PCOS, they get 12 tries a year on time, on a schedule, when they know they need to have sperm around to get pregnant. Mm -hmm. And the chances of them getting a baby in one year when you're under 30 to 35 is going to be 20%. So it's not like 100% hit right here anyway. Mm -hmm. But that's still 12 tries is normal to take a year. People with PCOS might be only ovulating three or four times in a year. So, you know, that's one fourth as often and it's random. And so, uh, or, or at least can seem pretty random, right? So it's not on a schedule, it's not 12 times. Um, but also the extra weight that goes hand in hand with um, PCOS mm -hmm. decreases fertility significantly. And so there's, there's certainly a lot of difficulties to overcome, but well-managed, it doesn't have to mean infertility. It just means subfertility and we can overcome that. Well, thank you for sharing because I, I was like, everyone who's asked me because I've gone through my own ovarian struggles, they're like, oh, is it PCOS? Can you not have a baby? Because I've heard PCOS, it makes you infertile. And I'm like, I don't know. Okay. I don't have PCOS, but that, that is, that's scary because one at one in every 10, if that's the truth, but right. I've heard, I've heard women that have had PCOS got pregnant on the second try. I've heard women that have had PCOS and it took them five years to get pregnant. Right. right? It's kind of just, it just, I think it just depends on you. If that makes sense. Does that make sense? Am I just making that up? No. Um, there's a, it's a syndrome. So there's a huge spectrum of how someone has this syndrome, you know, um, it's not that common, but, and why would we recognize it? So it might be more common than I know. Um, some people are going to only have 
the polycystic appearing ovaries mm-hmm. uh, and the hairiness. Yeah. But they're still ovulating and get in having a period once a month. Um, that's why this two out of three thing is kind of funny because that sets you up to have a huge range of what that person affected with it might look like and behave like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I mean by we're not going to test and find those people is um, they're getting pregnant. They're still yeah. ovulating once a month, you know, so yeah. we're not going to do a whole workup on that person. Um, but generally speaking, um, we don't want people wandering the earth just hoping they get pregnant. It's been years, right? So mm-hmm. um, that time matters. Um, a lot of times anyone trying to get pregnant and it hasn't happened in a year, not only do we recommend um, a medical workup for that person and their partner, mm-hmm. um, but also that's going to bring up the other stuff that we might need to optimize, right? So if someone has a very high BMI, we need to work on that too, because fertility is affected just by that. Maybe they smoke. Now that's further lowering fertility. So I can only do so much making someone ovulate. Mm-hmm. Um, and time matters. Our eggs get old. It's not fair, but that's how we are made. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that's why we also recommend pursuing a workup for fertility concerns. If it's been six months of trying and you're not pregnant and you're 30 to 35, some textbooks say 35. Um, I think a lot of people can argue at 30, give me six months before I start a workup because we want to identify those issues sooner when time is more, or I should say less forgiving for people. Um, (laughs) It sounds so ridiculous to say someone over 30 is old, but you know, um, fertility has been affected by that point, just by the age of the egg. So we want to get moving on that workup much sooner. I could not agree more. And you keep saying workouts. I'm curious, what does that mean? And like the, like the OBGYN world. Yeah. uh, A workup um, in my world. So that's going to be first, you know, the full history and physical exam, right? Sometimes that brings up stuff that I'm not even going to think about right now um, because it's a nuance that is the privilege of seeing someone in person. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's going to be an exam. Does everything feel normal and healthy? Is this uterus has a lot of fibroids, which is a really common benign, not cancer tumor of the uterus. Um, that can change its shape and sometimes affect a fertility. And that's not well-defined. You know, what else is going on? So mm-hmm. just saying, let's just say alone, PCOS, is she having heavy bleeding? Then I want to check the red blood cells, make sure that person's not anemic, um, check for platelets, make sure their spleen didn't suddenly decide to start chewing up their platelets so they're bleeding heavier. Um, you know, so just simple blood work. Uh, that um, I want to check that person person's Um, kidney function and liver function um, because again obesity you're more at risk for fatty liver disease um, or high blood pressure goes along with the elevated weight often seen with PCOS and so um, that can damage kidneys so we kind of want like that health overview that's called a comprehensive metabolic panel Mm -hmm. Um, then uh, I'm going to want a testosterone level because that's, you know, helpful. Make sure that this testosterone level is kind of like elevated female level. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a hard lab. It's not that accurate. So we don't put a lot of stock in this. Um, it's a good lab to get. Um, but just 
any lab, no matter who you use, it's really difficult to be accurate with female level testosterone. You know, men are a few hundred. That's mm -hmm. when it's a better test. Mm -hmm. So anyways, you want a free testosterone. You want to do a 17 hydroxy progesterone, which sounds really fancy, but it just helps us know, did that testosterone come from the ovaries or somewhere else? And we got to go looking at other issues. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, there, there's some other labs, again, some nuances why you might order some other stuff, but that's going to be the basic workup, possibly an ultrasound, especially if I have any concerns about what that uterus looks like, um, or those ovaries. Um, this is usually a transvaginal ultrasound, which sounds really, really scary. Um, and then the probe is really long, but that's just so that the tech doesn't have her hand up in your vulva, you know, so she could kind of stand back, but yet still see structures that are only a few centimeters away if you look transvaginally. So that's kind of the quick basic workup. Okay. Thank you. Again, thank you for educating. Because a lot of people like are going to be listening being like, oh my God, now yeah. I know this isn't as scary or oh thank shit, like I could have been doing this because like seeing an OBGYN, especially in Canada, is like winning the lottery. Okay. It's really hard to get into. Cause if you just go, if I just go to my, like my regular doctor, like, oh, well the OBGYN is going to be giving you those answers in a year. So don't Google in the meantime. So it's just kind of, it's thank you again for sharing. Um, I have a question. Um, it's not about, um, PCOS or like what a workup is, but um, a question I get now all the time, because I'm literally like the walk, everyone come, if they think someone's having an ovarian cyst, they just message me and I'm not an expert. I just, I have them quite frequently. Um, one of mine exploded. Everyone thought it was my appendix because I, you could, I felt fluid moving. Um, and everyone just associated like, oh my God, your appendix has burst. You, you're going to die. You need to go to emerge. And then when I went, they're like, oh, you had a massive cyst explode and we can't find your appendix on an x-ray. So we're going to cut you open and we're going to figure it out. Um, so I, I, out of curiosity, I, they, they removed my appendix and obviously drained all the fluid that they could get around my my, my ovarian cyst that exploded. Um oh. I remember that moment clear as fucking day like it was yesterday. I legit felt something explode. Like I felt it and like it was I was in so much pain and then I felt this bursting sensation and then I was in even more pain after because the fluid was trapped in my body. Yeah. Um so for anybody listening to this cuz now that everyone again thinks I'm the expert of a cyst bursting versus an appendix bursting yeah. um <laughs> i'm not can can you please shed light to saying the difference between an appendix bursting versus yeah. an ovarian cyst bursting uh, uh as far as the person experiencing it yeah. it might not be a whole lot different mm -hmm. we're not wired to feel details in our insides thank yeah. god um, because that would just be really uncomfortable all the time, you know, feel stool moving around, feel yeah. every single cyst that your ovary makes, which by the way, every time we ovulate, we're making a small cyst. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you had mentioned, you know, why, um, why are they sometimes a big deal? And most of the time they're not, well, because we're going to make one a month. Yeah. Um, 
unless you're PCOS and you're only making, I don't know, every time you ovulate, you know, three or four a year. So every time we ovulate, we expect to see a small cyst. Um, and it serves a purpose, you know, that's where um, uh, the egg comes from. Mm -hmm. um, it was ripened months before this and kind of the chosen one. Um, sometimes they get out of hand, um, meaning they assist from ovulation where fluid can just start kind of accumulating in this um, and they can get really large or sometimes the cyst occurs maybe for other reasons. Sometimes it's really just hard to know and we don't really ever know. Mm -hmm. um, they can bleed into themselves and be a hemorrhagic cyst, which is also really painful. Um, so in general, thankfully, our bodies are good at what they do. Mm -hmm. um, appendicitis can also feel um, I'm sure terrible. Um, <laughs> uh, clinically speaking, usually that person has some sort of unwellness before this, that's probably more significant than the ovarian cyst situation, like a little bit of fever and mm -hmm. feeling sick usually, but no one, you know, bodies don't read the book first. Yeah. Um, um, uh, either one rupturing can be dangerous. The ovary, um, cyst, rupturing is more likely to heal itself and not lead to surgery, but just be really painful and have fluid in your pelvis. Um, another reason it's hard to know, like, where did all this fluid come from is any inflammation creates fluid in your abdomen. So from your diaphragm to your pelvis, fluid is going to follow gravity and land in your pelvis. And so um, that I think further complicates the diagnosis, because if it's already ruptured, on ultrasound, you can't just see where it used to exist. Mm -hmm. You just see fluid in the pelvis. And yeah. so some people really did have a cyst, which is a, thankfully a decently rare event. Some people are far luckier than other people. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, you're unlucky to have this twice in a lifetime. Um, some people just, you know, they have pain. We can't describe why the ER makes sure they're not dying of anything else. That's their job. And then to say, well, maybe it was a cyst. There's some fluid in there. And maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Um, I will never really get to know. So they might be more common than we even get to know. And then we like to study the, these things and say, well, what can we do to prevent them? Mm -hmm. uh, maybe if we stop ovulation, we're going to stop that cyst process and prevent them in the future. Um, when studied, you know, looking at a large population of people that doesn't really pan out, but we like to think we're being useful or we like to at least try. So a lot of people will still be offered, um, basically what's contraception to try to prevent ovulation, um, in hopes that we can be useful to somebody mm -hmm. and keep them out of pain, but it doesn't always work. Which actually leads me to my next question is I get asked all the time because I have cysts and there's like there has to be something that they can do and they're and they're like like they're googling it like google's gonna find them the fucking answer and i'm like the the only way that's gonna solve it is birth control and if you're trying for a family can't take birth control right so is there any other things that you can do instead of just not dying every 28 days or whenever they burst? Oh, um, no. No, yeah. I Thank know. you. Thank, 
Mom, I know you're listening to this because you got really excited that I, I booked this interview. I want you to listen to what Lauren just said because my mom's always yeah. like, there has to be something. There has to be something. I wish. And, and the only thing they give me is morphine for the pain. Yeah. That's all I get. And I can't take morphine. I, I work a professional, like I work in corporate. I work a professional job. Um, Cause I had like the last time it burst, I was at work and I felt it and I sat straight up because I was like, oh my God, I don't know what the hell is going to happen. And I walked my boss. And I was like, I got to go home. I don't know when I'm coming back. I'm in yeah. a lot of pain. And he's like, what do you take? I was like, well, they gave me morphine. So that when I get home and I, I, everyone's just like, they give you morphine, yeah. like, holy shit. And I'm like, that is how painful they are to me that yeah. I have to be on morphine to survive. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, really we should be going, our goal should be a multimodal pain um, management. So we like to add um, what we call NSAIDs, like ibuprofen mm -hmm. to that as well. They're really good for cramping of the yes. uterus. It can help with inflammation and swelling. So it's going to be helpful to take both, yes. but yeah, we are very lousy. It's just um, symptom management and hoping it doesn't happen again, but some people have worse luck than most. And um, I think it's a, this as well as some other conditions where we're just like, try some birth control. This will at least hopefully help, right? Yeah. So people get really frustrated with my profession saying they just keep giving me birth control. There's nothing else. And they just, you know, I don't want to be on all these hormones. I don't want to be on birth control. Um, or I have a female partner. Why am I on birth control? I'm not at risk of pregnancy. It's just, yeah, we're limited. That's all I got. Um, and so, um, I, I, I think sometimes we deserve the benefit of the doubt too, is I would love to just fix it for you. Yeah. I, um, if I remove your ovaries, now you're mm -hmm. sterile, obviously, yeah. Yes. Um, but um, all cause mortality increases, meaning all the reasons women die goes up if I take out your ovaries before your 50s. Um, so I don't want to kill you. I don't want to give you osteoporosis. Um, I don't want to see you in pain. I don't want to be the one delivering the news that you're going to have to pick something and hope it works for you. Um even though you don't want to be on a pill every day, because otherwise you are a healthy person. And otherwise yeah. you're not on any medication. You know, so many women um, with this issue are young and healthy and perfect otherwise, mm -hmm. and they don't want to. And I don't have something better, but also I think, you know, sadly it's kind of a life lesson is you might not want to, but life gives us things that we don't get to choose. This I is one of them. I could not agree more. And, and you, you just said something fascinating about 50 because my last OBGYN appointment I had, uh, which was like a couple of months ago, uh, we had talked about um, because the amount of damage my ovaries have occurred through cysts that I would be an early candidate for a hysterectomy and not having to wait till my 50s. But I was read the thousands of things that could or may happen. And they're like, weigh the risks. Do you yeah. want to? Do you want to die, or do you want to now? I heard severe pain. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, that that was and basically it. And I, I honestly, I was like, hysterectomy, baby. Let's go. Can't be worse than what I'm currently experiencing. Yeah. And they're like, okay. Um. Well, after you have a successful pregnancy, we'll discuss. 
And I was like, awesome. But I know that I'm the exception to the rule. And I know that's not the normal rule for a lot of women because I say that they're like, you can't have a hysterectomy. You're going to have to be on hormones for the rest of your life. It's going to ruin your life. Nothing ruins my life more than being in constant pain all the time and yeah. constant, like a cyst bursting. It could not be a big one. It could be a small one. Yeah. Right. So you kind of weigh the factors. And this is actually a question that I made my OBGYN laugh. Um, I asked her and I said, if men had cysts on the outside of their balls, do you not think that there would be a prescription in a vending machine to make sure that would never happen again? Because I know there's testicular cancer, but I'm talking like a big old cyst just dangling on the like the outside. Because there, yeah. there would there would be marches in the street talking about it. There'd be lots more stuff. But because it's women, they're like, you guys got this. You're fine. It's not that bad. I get that all the time, especially from male doctors. It can't be that bad. Yeah. You have no idea. Um, am I right to feel that way? If men experienced it, there'd be cures and vending machines. You're totally right. There's there's a lot of inequities um in women's care, uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And yeah, there there would be, you know, I, there would be a lot more outrage at least you know would we have a better solution i don't know but there would be a lot more outrage there would be a lot more recognition there would be a lot more empathy Mm -hmm. Um, and i think that just speaks volumes of the importance of having a physician who knows you Mm -hmm. Um, because i know i piss off a lot of patients who are young May or may not have kids from my side. I don't really care how many kids someone has. Like mm-hmm. um, that's a whole nother topic. That's not my business. If you say you're done with kids or you never wanted them, fine. You know, that's, yeah. that's, I'll take that. That's face value for me. It's very easy, mm-hmm. but I am very uncomfortable removing ovaries in a young person mm-hmm. because, because, you know, one, I need to know this person really well. Like, yes. does she hear me saying I am setting you up to die of cardiovascular disease, the number one killer of women. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm setting you up for that by removing these ovaries. Um, additionally, you know, it's difficult unless we catch that cyst on imaging, all kinds of things are blamed on a ruptured ovarian cyst. And not all of those things were an ovarian cyst. Mm-hmm. And so now, am I putting someone through major abdominal surgery and all the risks of that for something that maybe only most likely is a once in a lifetime happening, mm-hmm. um, is possibly a misdiagnosis because fluid is from any inflammation? You know, what harm am I setting someone up for? And so by knowing your physician and giving me a chance to say, okay, you know, this is the same pain we've at least documented one cyst in the past that was kind of out of hand, you know, two, three centimeters, four, five, these are actually pretty common and they come and go. A lot of women don't even know about them, including myself. Um, you know, I get to cheat. No, cause I can just like ultrasound myself, but, um, they come and go. And so not every cyst equals pain or equals yeah. l- a risk to your life or is going to bleed or hemorrhage or anything. But there are women who totally deserve the attention of, Maybe we should remove those and spare you from, um, 
you know, ruining your whole career and being in pain and wondering if you need emergent surgery again mm -hmm. and all the risks of that. And it's a really difficult thing to balance. And the most important thing you can do is have a relationship with your doctor. Honestly, great advice. And we've been like, I can't say me and my OGM are on like texting terms because that's just inappropriate, but I will message them being like, hi, me. Um, I'm in a rough shape. And like they document it and everything. And I have a really big appointment uh, next yeah. month. And we're going to sit down and kind of talk about like what the last six months looked like. We're going to go over everything. Basically, a, a, a what's I think I want to call it what's up, but that's not what you refer to that list as. But like doing a full body exam, including a, like a pelvis test and a pap smear test, which actually leads me to my next question. Um, the importance of pap tests, past pap. Pap test. Yeah. 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 Pap. Thank you. Um, I didn't have my first pap test until I was in my twenties because I just like slept, snuck through yeah. the medical system. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, nobody, nobody asked me and I was on birth control. That's a tragedy since like 14 years old. And I just, they, they're like, Oh, like you don't need one. Like get one at your 16th birthday. And, and I got 16. I'm like, Oh, like I don't have enough time today. Like, we'll just do, we'll do the next time you're in. And I was like 17. They're like, you're good. And then I was 20 and they're like, you, yeah, you, they're like, where's your pap smear records? I was like, I've never had one. And they're like, oh my God. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? And I'm like, yeah, I didn't know how important it was because it was never educated to me how important they are. And now, um, be, like, well, I get them in the mail, like being like, hey, you haven't had a pap test in a while sign yourself up for one and if I don't do it because I forget because I'm an adult they send another letter and then <laughs> they just keep sending letters until you do it it's basically like Harry Potter scenario okay like they, you keep getting your letter <laughs> until you do it but that's good for people who are just like oh shit I gotta go do this but can you explain what is a pap test and why it's important yeah um so uh, a pap test is just cells, an examination of cells. And so technically um, this is going to change if we add co-testing, which is HPV testing based on age. So it is a cervical cancer screen that's age-based guidelines. Um, and again, your medical system might be a little different than what our recommendations are. Um, so in the United States in 2012, um, our major guideline makers, the ASCCP, came out with their updated recommendations, which is to start pap smears at age 21, actually. Oh. So yes, it was a big change because we used to do it as soon as we could get a hold of girls. Like, yeah. Oh, you're sexually active? We'll do one now. Mm -hmm. There's rare exception. Immunocompromised people, people with HIV um, or uh, like a solid uh, organ transplant would obviously be some exceptions um, to this rule. So we start at age 21, um, 21 to 29. It's every three years using cells only um because hpv is a virus that basically most of us get and is part of having sex that's part of putting yourself at the risk uh, that comes with sex um so we have a vaccine for it hpv is a virus that causes um cervical cancer among other cancers so that hpv vaccine really brings down the risk of cancer 
really effectively, but it's not zero. So we're still papping everyone, whether or not you've been vaccinated. Um, based on, you know, status doesn't matter there. Mm -hmm. uh, sexual activity status, by the way, does not matter. You know, age 21, we want to be papping everyone. We'll come yeah. back to that later if I remember. Um, okay, so then age 30, that's when we add this co-testing, looking for the high-risk strains of HPV, um, meaning the ones that can cause the trouble on the cervix, um, and we test the cells. And when that's both negative, then it's every five years through age 65. Um, again, these are guidelines for the masses. This is not tailored to every single person's individual situation. Um, and they tell us stop at age 65, which um, that's also because now that we understand a bit more of how HPV behaves and that it has to be around to cause trouble, mm -hmm. um, it takes on average 30 years to get to cancer. So by 95, most of us are dead. Um, we're supposed to do no harm, but a uh, part of that is not over testing. And another part of that is going to be utilizing our limited healthcare resources wisely. And so we should be doing only useful testing mm -hmm. and testing after age 65 is not necessarily useful. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, okay. This devil's advocate. Do you think like personally you, do you think that you should continue to test past 65? So I live in Florida. Mm -hmm. I have these amazing women who like live forever. <laughs> um, their parents lived forever. You know, everyone in my family is in their 90s or early 100s when they die. I keep papping those women. Yeah. Um, I think that's really reasonable. Um, obviously, it's the patient's choice, right? After yes. 65, I review briefly. Um, it's not helpful for me to be looking for precancers that um, won't have time to get to cancer if you have a normal lifespan. Um, so yeah, there are some people I continue in. Some people, you know, we don't, it's not specifically stated so much to consider sexual activity or number of partners when we test, but obviously people are, who are at higher risk, people getting new partners are getting new HPV strands. And so they're going to get ones that their bodies haven't seen and they're at higher risk. Um, uh, people that just want one, this is the United States. And so Medicare insurance covers cells only every two years. So a lot of my patients are just like, honey, you're down there. Just do it. I'm like, well, okay. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's a shared decision-making. Um, I am very comfortable recommending not to do it in people who don't have these bizarre long lifespans. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's very uncommon. Um, very comfortable following those recommendations for the average person. Well, thank you. I I was just I was just super curious. I was just being like, oh shit, like I don't know what it's like here, but like my mom's older, and I know she still got some. So I was like, huh. Yeah. Curious to see now if that's across the board, but. Again, I think it's important if, if if it's covered, like there's no harm in testing. Am I right? No, actually. So oh. there can be harms, right? So um, anxiety, anxiety is something that matters. And so if I'm finding stuff that was never going to be clinically significant, okay, I'm just 
creating an anxious patient who might be worried that she has cancer. Oh, um, shit. Okay. That's significant. Um, when we do get an abnormal pap test, this is a screening test. So mm-hmm. it's supposed to find everything that might be abnormal. And then the diagnostic test has less false positives, um, meaning it's we're going to be really, really specific with what we're looking for to identify who has something happening and who does not. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are going to be biopsies. They're crampy. We don't have a great way to numb for this. That's not a nice thing to do to somebody. Um, it might cost some people some significant amount of money, um, which could be a big deal for a lot of people. Um, it might lead me to treating, you know, a 75 year old with CIN2, you know, high grade pre-cancer is what yeah. CIN2 is. It might lead me to treat that in somebody who was never going to live long enough to see the cancer. Okay. So, right? so I, I would like to take back my statement. Apparently there's a lot of harm. This is what I'm talking about. Like, to the to the generic folk like me, I mean, I'm smarter than a rock, but I'm definitely not a rocket scientist. And it's yeah. just educating us at being like, no, like there are factors. Like li- like listen and being like, th- it, it can be scary on the other side. There are risks of doing it. Where my mindset's like, I'll oh, just do it. We'll deal yeah. with it. We'll deal with it. We deal with it. But not you everybody- are not alone. <laughs> <laughs> But that, that's why I wanted to have you on here today to talk about like, there's two sides, right? To everything. There's the, oh shit, I'm going to die. Oh shit, you saved my life, right? Yeah. So it's it's finding the, the comfortable balance between both, which actually leads me to talk about the main topic of ovarian health and why it's important. I didn't really know what ovarian health was until I was in my 20s um the only form of sex education i had in schools because i went to catholic school so you can uh imagine uh the education yeah, i had nothing uh, <laughs> nothing um nice. if i had sex before i was married i was gonna die uh if women masturbated i was going to go to hell because god forbid yeah. women feel an orgasm but guys can jack off um is there something in the bible about I men think so, but I think they're just like women just don't know how to orgasm. So they're like, mm, we shouldn't just learn how to do that. And I think that's really sad because orgasming is amazing. And that's like the best part of having sex. But anyways, long story short, didn't know what a true orgasm was until my 20s either. But um, I learned about STDs for two days. Um, and basically I was told that I would have an STD if I had sex before marriage. Like it was guaranteed. Like it was in the stars and you, and I believed it. Right. I mean, that's what, that's what you're taught in school. But it's um, also posed that if you wait until marriage, you absolutely will not get an STD. Yes. That's also a thing. You can't get an STD if you're married. That's, yeah. That's great. <laughs> that's lies. Um, but I didn't know how important ovarian health was or even the, what the hell that even meant until yeah. I was in my twenties. And it was already too late at that point. So they'd be like, Oh, that's too late. But like, Oh, like I've been sexually active for like, four or five years now like I wish I would have known this um quick like a quick of a like synopsis of how important ovarian health is to the younger generation that's now starting to from what I've heard on the you know the TikToks which is now aging me like kids are starting to have sex earlier now which is mind-baffling in my Um, personal opinion because like I like 
I don't know. I was like, I was like 16. I feel like that's pretty normal, but I also now learning that that's pretty young as well. Is that, is that young or is that too old or is that the right age? I have, <laughs> I have no idea. I guess it's when you're ready. It's when you're but, ready, but like the numbers that are coming out today are, is the youth having sex earlier? I don't think so. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. I've not seen any studies conclusively say like, um, that the time of first intercourse or first sex, you know, however you want to define that every, yeah. everyone might, you know, it's going to be different for a lot of people, how they define this, but that age isn't significantly different that I've ever read than it was 70 years ago. Okay. It's just that women don't have to pay the price that we used to, meaning infertility from un, un, uh, unnoticed, untested for STDs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't get shipped off to some secret place and say that you're at your aunt's house for a while and then you come back without your baby because uh, yeah. they were given up for adoption. You know, so um, a lot, a lot of these things aren't thankfully our reality anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't know that the age is much different. I think um, a lot of that has to do with um, a bit of culture, a bit of self-esteem, home life. Um, yeah, that's, you know, is that normal? I think it seems pretty normal. Um, yeah, it's kind of funny. I guess I don't know exactly the most average age and I bet it changes depending on region and everything. Oh, I'm sure. And I'm sure it even comes down to if it's a religious um, area versus a non-religious area. But for anybody, like I confused me out there when I was like 16 years old, because being told I'm going to have an STD immediately, like like just right away, Um, (laughs) the amount of misinformation out there, what information can you give us that it's important when it comes to ovarian health? Oh, um, so, you know, I think the first thing is that not even considering sexual activity is that periods are some level of suffering, even the people that get really lucky and they have like four day long periods without much PMS symptoms and not much cramping and not heavy flow. Mm -hmm. It's still completely unnecessary unless you want a baby. There's no other reason to ovulate. Um, you don't need to make a lining. You don't need to suffer through this all the time. And so some people are really comfortable taking a medication to get rid of that. You know, other times they need to, because they want to play sports, they're bleeding through their clothes. They're embarrassed. They're avoiding normal activities. Um, you know, I, I tell my kids, your full-time job is to go to school and do well. And if you are there in pain, um, you know, if you're unfocused, if you're not excelling because you're embarrassed to get out of your seat and ask for another bathroom break because you're limited to two and your school nurse, yeah, um, your school nurse isn't allowed to give you Motrin anymore because everything's like, I, I know there's some really restricting things that happens to girls. You know, in Florida, they even tried to have girls report when they're having their periods um yeah it was really sick um there were these laws didn't get passed this Mm -hmm. time um so um ovarian health kind of starts there is a check-in you know with might even be just your pediatrician when you're that young is Mm -hmm. are you having regular periods 
are they not regular yet? Do you need reassurance from this or should we start a workup? Well, you know, like we discussed earlier, you know, are you at risk of PCOS? Have you suddenly gained a lot of weight? Is it, you know, are we concerned about um, insulin um, elevated levels and glucose intolerance that runs with PCOS um, and overweight? Um, ovarian health is basically another vital sign. It's as important as your blood pressure. And mm -hmm. it might take some years for your brain to get good at talking to your ovaries, but your doc probably needs to know about this vital sign, um, you know, regarding preserving fertility. No girl should be paying a lifetime price for having sex and experimenting and being a normal person, mm -hmm. um, which an undiagnosed STD would do to somebody. Um, not every time, you know, you don't instantly get an STD, nothing like that. But if you were, we want to be able to help and keep you safe. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, you know, thankfully, STDs aren't just like a given, you know, some people get really, really lucky. Some people get so unlucky, they they have one partner, and they'll get like three things from that partner, you know, including herpes, which, um, you know, it's, it's mentally very upsetting. It's not that hard of a thing yeah. to just physically live with, but mentally, I have elder women, you know, 60, 70, still bitch about the man that gave her that when she was 20. And it's just like, I'm sorry, lady. Like I got to move on. Um, everyone has herpes, you know, in my head, it's just like, um, but it's painful for people. Yeah. So um, I can't be as helpful as a loved one that is trusted um, for the emotional stuff with it, but maybe I can steer someone towards that. And, um, you know, ovarian health, I think, is broader than is recognized and everyone deserves to have the chance to be healthy. That is definitely such a, such a great answer. And especially when it comes to periods of just you kind of just like, oh, okay, I got it. And then like your mom has to have that like awkward talk with you being like, your life's changed until you menopause and have fun. <laughs> and like, it, but it comes down to like, I remember being like, why can't I use tampons at a young age? My mom's like, you can't use tampons until you have sex for the first time. Is that true? Or is that just a mom lie? That's a mom lie. But okay. in all fairness, she's lying to herself. Like she probably really believes that. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, there are some tampons that bloom more mm -hmm. than elongate. And so obviously if someone has, um, an intact hymen, it's going to be more uncomfortable to try to get that big soggy yeah. bloom tampon out. That's that, that's painful, but, um, you know, you can get a longer one. You can get the lighter day ones and just change them out faster. Mm -hmm. Um, it's perfectly safe. There's nothing dangerous about that. I could not agree more. I, I told my mom that like, like a couple of years ago. I was like, mom, it's a tampon. It's fine. She's like, you shouldn't be using it. And I'm like, I'm going to yeah. take it out in like two hours because that's just how my flow works. Okay. Like if I could keep a tampon in for three hours, holy shit. I'm having a good period. Yeah. Um, but yeah. that also leads me to a question that I've actually never had the courage to ask anybody. I'm yeah, right Aww. here. Uh, when it comes to Midol, I've recently just discovered, rediscovered Midol as an adult. And it is a goddamn lifesaver. Can you explain, like, why is Midol so much better than ibuprofen? Or am I just, is it just marketing and it make it, it convinces me that it's better? Marketing. <laughs> no, because it makes me feel less bloated. Yeah. I swear to God. 
Yeah, they they have something for bloating in there. Hang on, I gotta look it up because mitol. You know, the main thing is gonna be Tylenol in it. Yeah, it's um, acetaminophen. Yeah, yeah. Um, which actually, ibuprofen is much better for uterine cramping than Tylenol. Twelve hour Advil, baby. I know it only works for eight hours because no tell. Yeah. I know Advil can actually last for twelve, but yeah. for me, whole. Oh, Two 12 hour Advil and a mitol in a day solves mostly of all the pain. Nice. So yeah. Um, right. You, you found something that works for you, uh, but yeah. it, it's really good marketing. So here I just pulled it up. Yeah. Um, it is Tylenol, um, caffeine, uh, in parentheses, they put a diuretic. So that's the part for the bloating. Yeah. And then pyrilamine malleate um mm-hmm. is an antihistamine um i'm not sure why they chose that one you know so is like claritin so is benadryl um i'm not sure actually that's interesting to fight fatigue and bloating so maybe that's why they chose it i'm uh that's interesting i'm not that familiar with that particular antihistamine um usually they make you tired so it's interesting to fight fatigue um so if it works for you great but for cramping I usually do say ibuprofen way better yeah I usually like to this is like my cocktail I'll take a 12-hour Advil and a Midal at the same time I got a good six hours maybe if once the pain has finally subsided and then I'll take another one about the eight hour mark it's my little cocktail but anyone please listen do not do that unless a doctor says it's okay, because (laughs) I, I do that for me because I don't, I can't take morphine at my job. So I I was able to find a a path that I can take and still function. Uh, Speaking of still functioning, um, there's always this like a random weird story online of a woman. I see one like once a week, a woman almost dying of toxic, 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 Oh my God. Toxic so- stock. I can't even say it. Um, PSM. Thank you. Um, of leaving a what? tampon in for multiple days. Yeah. This is it as common as I feel like, because I don't know how a woman can leave a tampon in longer than like three to four hours being like, Oh, I should probably remove that. I suck a psych, a soggy diaper inside. Yeah. Um, so, have you, have you ever experienced anything like that in your, in your studies and practices? Um, the left tampon or toxic shock? Both. I'll mm-hmm. take both. <laughs> um, yeah. So toxic shock syndrome, um, is from a bacteria that actually, oh God, uh, makes a protein that can create this syndrome. It's okay. really, really dangerous. Um, and interesting, any interestingly, anything stuffed into the body um, can do that. So uh, we also like people will get a nose job for whatever reason, and they'll have their sinuses packed. Yeah. Same thing. They're also at risk. Okay. Uh, so it's not just something terrible about the vagina or anything like that. Um, there are, you know, is it the blood? Is it um, air? Is it? We we do find that toxic shock syndrome has become rare to the point I've never seen it in my career mm-hmm. um, since taking off these super duper ex- absorbent tampons that were on the market um, decades ago. Yeah. Um, okay. So I've never seen it in real life, but of course it's a board question. So we all are very familiar with yeah. the risk that it would be tampons being left in. Um, yeah. I've seen them. It happens. I don't know. You know, yeah. Uh, some women, 
um, openly confess like, oh my God, I forgot my period ended. I put that in and I just kind of forgot. And then they live their lives and they're like, what is this discharge? What is this smell? Um, it's really not that uncommon. Some people get drunk, put in a second one and they forgot the first one. Oh my um, God. Sorry. I just felt that in my fucking ovaries. Jesus. Yes. Um, so how it happened. Like, how can you fit two? Sorry. That's just oh. my, that's just my body screaming yeah. right now. The top of the vagina is spacious. So <laughs> things can just go up there. Um, but I think that's important too, is they're not going anywhere else. The vagina is a blind pouch. It ends yeah. where your cervix starts. So um, a lot of people are really, you know, they, they freak out and they think like their tampon could travel up into their lungs. And that's why they got a cough yesterday. <clears throat> no, um, it Sorry. happened. It's Sorry. okay. Sorry. Um, I did. I, everybody has proper medical questions. I, I've just, I've heard a lot of crazy things on this podcast that ticks the cake I think oh. if so, did someone actually truly believe that though we only just got started yeah that... <laughs> oh I no you, you have to keep doctor. telling me more that I'm now even more curious so yeah people really think that um and so they're very scared of the vagina they never received proper education on how to be comfortable with their body right on the flip side I think something really cool that I see more and more is the higher self-awareness of how mm. a body functions that's happening, um, especially with menstrual cups or discs or whatever someone prefers. Like, yes, this is very cool. People are very comfortable reaching in there. What's my cervix feel like? What's going to fit me best? Oh, I leaked with this one because then they can troubleshoot why based on their shape of their um, anatomy, their level of prolapse, you know, whatever. It's very cool and it's basically the opposite of the lost tampon phenomenon but both are common at this point in time i i appreciate that but actually you're just like i didn't even give you questions you're just leading this perfectly when it comes to diva cups it's become really popular in the last couple years of talk i would say tiktok has really brought diva cups or menstrual cups to the cycle of this is how you can do your i'm not comfortable doing it just because i have a lot of blood and I'm not convinced that it's just not going to like, oh, fall out or anything like that. I yeah. know how amazing it is. I just, I just have a hard time being in a public place. My diva cups fall. The fuck do I do? I'm in a stall. You know what I mean? But don't let my old age discourage you from getting one. Yeah. Um, Like, would you like, like, for modern stuff like would you recommend diva cups or obviously the nyx underwear to me is a goddamn lifesaver i love my nyx yeah. it saves everything like there's a lot more modern uh stuff coming out for menstrual cycles as an OBGYN, what is on your wish list for the like the next modern um products that we could have to fight our menstrual cycle oh <laughs> um I would say my 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 number one wish list to fight it would be to be like more normal countries where um, birth control, for whatever reason we want to use it, is just over the counter um, because the safety profile is beautiful because we don't have to ovulate and make a lining and have a period every month if we're not wanting a baby. I'm just going to move into my bathroom here because it's late enough. There's no more lights outside. Um, so anyhow, uh, that would be my my first wish is contraception a normal part of medical care that also gets rid of 
painful periods and um, heavy flow would be available. Um, I think you mentioned two really good products. There's many brands, um, mm -hmm. Thinks and Nicks and these really absorbable underwear that are great for periods, especially um, people who are going to overflow, um, teens that are not allowed to just go to the bathroom like normal people when they need to because um, they're in school, um, as well as actually um, kind of the other end of the spectrum, usually um, my urine incontinence patients mm -hmm. um because they keep the vulva drier so that the urine's not always or blood not irritating those tissues constantly so they do a bit better um yeah the discs i guess i would love to see <laughs> this is asking too much yeah. um i would love to see the government decide to subsidize something for women's health like this yes. um because it's creates less waste um to be using a reusable silicone very safe device um you know so that saves our landfills um it saves there's a you know we call it a period tax a lot of people especially impoverished girls um don't have access to these things mm -hmm. so i would love for the government to step in and make these widely available um for really an inexpensive price i don't think you know i wouldn't say to the companies make it for cheaper because then you get a shittier product yeah. i think the government should do their part to make these products available because they are a health need. Mm -hmm. um, and then probably just being able to have an OBGYN readily available to see. And then that's a structural issue. It sounds like in your country as well. Mm -hmm. um, we are in shortage of all physicians, um, also OBGYNs. Also, it's a litigious field. Women's care is not well compensated if you compare something i do um to the male version of it mm -hmm. that is compensated um much better even though it takes the same level of skill it just happens to be my patient has a uterus and theirs does not in urology um so i think a lot of equality things would just be top of my list well it's the pink tax right it's the pink tax of being a girl God forbid that you want to make equal pay. I just found out at my job this week that I make 30% less than my male equivalents. Right. Not and our women of color mm -hmm. are at an even greater disadvantage. And ah. Um, ah. It's, it's, it's disgusting. Why? Yeah. Like, like as a feminist, I always get flack being like, you want women to be better. No, I want to be equal. Yeah. I want to be sitting next to my male and be treated equally not be treated differently and it's bullshit that we're in 2023 and we're still talking about right. wage gaps we're, we're still, still doing the same job if not better more yes. efficiently more attentively yep. um, in the physician world um patients of female physicians are shown to have better outcomes um uh that's not an accident that's it's a universal finding mm -hmm. um when i started my first job a man who grew on me later. Um, but um, I, you know, physicians are older by the time we start a real life, right? So um, by the time I finally had some level of autonomy, like this is my real job and I'm going to earn some money enough to live off of and live in 
a city where I want to live. Um, I was 30. Um, so, okay, now I'm already in the age range where we know fertility is decreasing. Um, I work a million hours. I struggle to eat the healthful food that I know I want to eat. Not everyone even manages to do that. Um, so most of us want to have children if we're partnered and ready once we get to our first real job. And I started this job being told kind of vaguely in my contract, like call will be reasonable. And so I had them define that for me um, as one in three, meaning you share that with two other physicians. So three-way split of call. Yeah. It's still pretty heavy when you're on 24 seven during that call. Um, And labor and delivery was about to open. And it was just me and my partner um, who he and I got along wonderfully. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where is the third person? And the CEO came by and said, hey, what can I do for you? What do you need? And I said, I need that third person to split call with that you guys promised me. Mm -hmm. And the first thing he said was, well, just don't get pregnant. Yeah, I know. It was like vomit. Um, And uh, let me tell you, a lot of the three letter high ups in that system came to personally apologize to me for that statement. Mm -hmm. Uh, I probably could have taken it somewhere, you know, litigiously with it. But um, mostly my feelings were just hurt because um, because I did want children. And I was trying and I wasn't pregnant and I was frustrated and I was scared. And now he tells me, don't fuck up the call. <laughs> Why do you just ask me what you need? Um, by asking for a meager maternity leave that won't be paid either, by the way. Because <laughs> um, we don't really have maternity leave uh, in this country for for a lot of people. You know, women go back after two weeks on average in this country. What? Yeah. What? So in Canada, it's 12 or 18 months. Most women take 18 now. That's beautiful. I shouldn't say on average, 25% of women, I believe is the quote, go back after two weeks. Um, so you're, so you're mid your postpartum, you haven't been sleeping, you're leaking everywhere. Yeah, let's go back and work nine to five. Shouldn't be a problem though, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and these women are in positions, if you got to go back in two weeks, um, it's probably not universally the case, but a lot of these women are going to be at jobs where they don't have full autonomy. They have to be at, um, a lot of my patients were like gas station attendants. They have to be at that stool or else you close down and lock your doors and they don't want to lose business for you to go pump for 20 minutes, yep. but she's entitled to that, but she's not going to be bold enough to ask for that because they'll just find a reason to fire her. Mm-hmm. And so it goes hand in hand. There's terrible breastfeeding rates. There's no support financially there's no time off there's there's no you know there's not like these huge generations of women who just know how to do it and support her because in her community all her elder women are in that same situation you know they didn't get to breastfeed either um and that shouldn't be something that's just for affluent women or women who are bold enough to demand what they deserve see i think women we need to band together 
instead of tearing each other apart, I find that quite frequently dealing with women that we're always comparing ourselves to one another and trying to outdo one another because that's what society has made us feel that we all we're always trying to outdo our female rivals. And then God forbid, if you show any sternness at work, you're labeled as a bitch. Like, oh, she's such a bitch. Like, we need to stop that. And women need to work together. Could you imagine if just like, like women went on strike? Like, we're just like, no, we're going to go on strike to we have human rights. Yeah. And then again, again, guys would be like, ooh. But if guys had their human rights being questioned, holy shit. Again, protests, yeah. riots. They, they would have it before 5 p.m. They could go home for supper. Like, it's just, it's it's fascinating that we have to fight. And something that you said, like, they would never ask for it. I had uh, my last job. I used to do the hiring. And I was covering a second mat leave. There was an office of five. The okay. owner and myself and then three other female uh, co-workers. Uh, two were under the age of 30. I was also under the age of So there was three of us under the age of 30. And the owner came and asked me, um, because I brought forth to him a woman that was 30. And he was going to say, you have to ask her if she's going to take a mat leave because if she says, yeah, if that's in her future in the next one to two years, we're not going to hire her. And I said, absolutely not. I will never ask a woman that question. How dare you even, even think of that thought being okay. And I hope that, you know, I'm going to interview a male now coming in. I'm specifically going to pick a male and ask him if he's going to take a paternity leave. How dare you just associate the women taking mat leaves you disgusting human being we screamed in front of each other so I refused to ask that question and he was going to bring it up and I ended the interview so on the first day after we hired the lovely lady my older co-worker marched up to her and asked her if she was going to take a mat leave and I walked over I was like you do not have to answer that and don't feel obligated to answer that on your first day and yeah. she's like, no, I'm not. Like, I don't want to get pregnant. I hate babies. And everyone turns to me and goes, see, Jen, not a big deal. And I'm like, you have no idea. This person has worked for us for five minutes. You yeah. have no idea the struggles that she has gone through to get here today. Right. What if she just had a miscarriage? We don't yeah. know. We don't know. Why are we asking these such invasive questions? Because now, because everyone's like, oh, babies, because I'm getting married in September. They're like, oh, baby's got to be around the future. And I'll be like, I don't know. But the answer is we've been trying for a long time. Just nothing happened. And then I'll be like, oh, they'll be like, it's not your, It's when it's your time, you'll know. And I'm like, the fuck does that mean? I don't know. That doesn't mean anything, right? Yeah. Anyways, long story short, um, I actually got one more question for you, and then I'm, I'm going to wrap up because I'm fading into the darkness, and it's getting late for both. I of did us. too. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I've been I've been following you on Instagram, and I'm really loving your your Instagram journey of educating women. Um, thank you again for reaching out because this was a, a huge passion project of mine of educating women the importance of ovarian health. You posted a post on Father's Day talking about, uh how to increase your testosterone because most people associate if you can't have a baby in a relationship everybody points their head to the woman but once the woman's cleared every woman then points their head to the males and no one ever associates the male having low testosterone at first um what advice could you give to anybody listening to this podcast specifically a male to yeah. boost their testosterone levels 
Yeah. Um, so more specifically, fertility levels. Fertility levels. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, it, it, interestingly, um, I won't comment on like what testosterone levels ideal for men, you know, and, and, mm. and sperm counts and all of that. Um, that's funny that you saw that. Thanks. Um, no, of course. <laughs> so um, I, I think that's why I contacted you. You know, as I I saw I saw a gay pride. Um, mm post and I saw um a mission to educate that you mentioned and yes. obviously that's my whole career um and but not most of my patients are uh men mm -hmm. uh, so my my information is gonna be really basic before I refer someone elsewhere um to the urologist um and there's ones that specialize in fertility but you know number one would be optimize your health is um normal weight if possible mm -hmm. um uh, you want to be not taking exogenous testosterone because um, your brain is being told I have testosterone. And so it, your brain will assume that's from your own testicles, right? And not tell them to work harder, but it's not, it's from elsewhere. So if your testicles shut down, um, obviously you're not going to have a good sperm count, if anything. And um, I've run into a lot of patients along the way that we're doing her initial discussion. So I'm trying to figure out what her workup is and, you know, what's your partner like? How long you've been together? How long are you trying? Um, is he healthy? Oh yeah. He's really healthy. I'm like, Oh, every once in a while someone accidentally tell me I need to ask more. What do you mean? Really healthy? What's he do? That's so healthy. Oh, he works out all the time. Okay. Does he take testosterone? No. And then um, I've actually had many people come back and say, actually he does. <laughs> Um, so sometimes they keep it as a secret and they don't mean to sabotage trying to have this baby. Um, they just don't know that they're ruining their testicular function. Um, so sometimes it is quite innocent. Um, so don't take exogenous testosterone and actually marijuana is found to decrease sperm, uh, motility and quality. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't comment so much on like what do edibles and other like CBD yes. only things do. They're just not legal long enough for me to have seen any studies. I'm sure they're happening. Yes. Um, but yeah, so we know don't smoke marijuana that screws up fertility. Um, and then I mentioned like, wait, don't smoke. Um, our recommendations are four drinks or less per week of alcohol for fertility. Um, yeah, those are the big ones offhand. And you're right. Uh, we always point the finger at the woman or we ourselves point our fingers at ourselves. Um, but a third of fertility is the female. A third of fertility is the male. And a third is um, something we'll never diagnose. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Um, thank you for sharing that as well. I know a lot of uh, women, I'm in now. I'm at, I'm now in the age group that everyone's getting married and having kids. It's very common, and yeah. everybody had a huge, uh, like everyone had a baby in the last like two three years. I mean, it was COVID. Like, what <laughs> what other activity were you doing if you were at home alone with your partner and you had nothing else better to do because everything was closed and no um, OB to give you birth control apparently. <laughs> exactly. So a lot of people had babies, and we were trying, and it just wasn't happening. And people knew and. Um, it was really, I, I really got the finger pointed at me really quickly 
of being like, oh, it must be her because she's had problems already. And then when an OBGYN's like, yeah, you're you're fine. Like the, I can't see it being a problem. Everybody then pointed um, my fing- their fingers to my partner and was like, it's his fault then. And he didn't like feeling the pressure, but I felt the pressure for years. And I'm going to say to you, it felt like freeing for a second to know that it wasn't me. Yeah. It was potentially him or we were just not, you know, doing the devil's tango enough or not following proper ovulation and all that and all that good stuff. But it's not nice to have the finger pointed in you in either direction because then yeah. you feel like you're fucking it up. Um, and then that can be really stressful because the thing is, is like we and I will say this really openly, like we struggled when we first started trying Um to get intimate. I mean, we've been together for a long time, but that's not a problem. But if I'm like, you have to have as much sex with me in this span of four days, can't go. The pressure got into his head. Yeah. And then he's like, well, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then I'm like, what do you mean you can't? Yeah. You're yeah. a guy. <laughs> of course you can. And then, yeah. and then it, it stems to a fight, right? Being like, just because I'm a guy doesn't mean I think about and are horny all the time. And then you go like, okay, well, we just missed this month. So we'll try again in 30 days. We'll go yeah. from there. And it, it, I think it just kind of, kind of comes down to proper communication as well. Cause everyone just associates. And I did it when I first started trying. And I was like, oh, you just have as much sex as possible through your ovulation. Okay, go. Right. And then more information came out. Like I learned more of like, like you can do it every other day. Still has the same effect. Take ovulation tests, learn your body, track your cycle, all that good stuff. But before that, it's like, go to pound town as much as you want. And then I'm like, that's that's how UTIs happen. If you don't properly clean up after, you know, it's great. Right. Also, that's something that guys never have to understand is and I will end this on like the most disgusting note. And I was talking about this with my girlfriend who uh, I did get pregnant throughout the pandemic and her, uh, her son is now 10 months old. Um, we were talking about how gross it is to like, as a woman for trying for babies, because whatever goes up must come down. And that shit is gross after a couple of days of trying, if you know what I mean. Um, I've been paid a lot of money over the years to just diagnose semen. Uh, <laughs> because yeah not everyone realizes it has to go somewhere and it doesn't just magically absorb and stay neat and tidy it's not how it goes yeah <laughs> comes right down and I'll just be like you just feel gross after just like oh just like you're just sitting having a meeting and you'll and you're just like okay yeah which and- by the way you can't just stay upside down there's no magical like keep it in there situation no um, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, Lauren, I want to say it has been an absolute pleasure getting to sit here and talk to you today. Thank you so much for reaching out to me and want to be part on this and, and just educating myself and everyone listening to this, the importance of ovarian health. Um, where can we find you on the internet? Where, like, where, where are you? So I can send everybody your, your way. Yeah. Um, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and to share, you know, a common mission and, maybe make my field less scary to people. Um, I, I just got on Instagram because as you said, maybe you aged yourself with some other things. I wasn't 
uh, there. So I'm the benign Gine on Instagram, or you can look me up as Lauren, L-A-U-R-E-N, Julia, J-U-Y-I-A. Um, and I kind of linked it to my Facebook. Come here, baby. It's okay. My son's had enough. Um, uh, so that's how you can find me. Or if you're in Florida, I'm in Clearwater and Brooksville, and my practices are Elite Women's Care, and we're growing, and I'd be happy to see you. Well, I want to say, Lauren, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to know you today. Please go check out uh, her. All the links are going to be below. Thank you for coming here today and educating everybody listening to this of the importance of ovarian health. I would love to have you back to talk about more niche topics, taking actual deep dives to the main things, because we can never not have enough information when it comes to ovarian and sex health, in my personal opinion. So I would love to have you back and... I hope you had a good time here and I want to wish everyone a great rest of your night um, as we're literally fading into the darkness. <laughs> Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for having me, Stassi. It was wonderful. Of course. I'll see you again. Of course. We'll have a great rest of your night. Okay. Okay. Thank Bye. You.